listening to a podcast from The National. This week, we've seen the latest twist in the story of fallen private equity star Abraj. First half tourism figures from Dubai and Abu Dhabi are showing the resilience of the industry, and Apple edges ever closer to that mark, which is, depending on your point of view, significant or meaningless, which will bring it to $1 trillion in market capitalization. You're listening to an episode of the Business Extra podcast coming from the National's Abu Dhabi newsroom. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Later on, we'll be discussing personal finance with Alice Hain. There'll be a bit of a summer vibe and we'll get some spending and reading tips from her. But for now, I'll just work through two or three of the big headlines of the week, which you can find as always at thenational.ae. The founder of private equity firm Abraj, Arif Nakvi, has been embroiled in another case over a bounce check to do with loans he took out to prop up his company. Um, now, Hamid Jafar, who was the businessman who had been at the center of the last case for a bounce check in Sharjah that Arif Nakvi had managed to settle out of court, according to what his lawyers have said, um, has now presented the latest check, which is considerably bigger, at over 700 million dirhams for this overall 1 billion loan that uh, Abraj had taken out. We've since discovered from uh, auditor statements and reports in the media um, that Abraj had been, over many years, consistently uh, funneling money around the company because they're earnings couldn't keep up with their expenses. They borrowed a lot of money to finance investments and to also run their operations. This seemed quite a different model to use, uh, shall we say, in terms of private equity in the region. Um, And although they had many, many investors, including international uh, well-known names such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, that didn't quite mean that they were able to cover their expenses. They were quite lavish. They even funded an art prize. Um, Arif Nakvi himself always made sure that Abraj was seen. They had big investment conferences where they invited uh, the sort of heralded uh, names of the finance industry as well. Um, They really did kind of project a very strong brand for the region. And now that that is significantly diminished, that brand, if it can ever be recovered. We have several uh, entities looking to buy the funds of Abraj. um, And and many of these funds are not actually affected by what the group was doing at the group level. There was only one fund at which uh, these high-profile investors, such as Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, wondered where their money had gone. And it turned out it had been commingled with the firm's uh, funds to pay for expenses. Expenses. So that that's all unraveling at the moment. We've seen over the last few weeks, many companies declare their exposure on the whole limited to Abraj, much of it's secured debt, which means that they shouldn't be going under. A couple of, um, uh, well, not going under is probably dramatic, but they shouldn't uh, be too adversely affected uh, by Abraj should it go under. Um, it's definitely going to go into liquidation. We'll see what happens in terms of bankruptcy proceedings. There's kind of court stuff going on in the Cayman Islands, but it remains a fascinating story about this region, about the business scene in the Gulf and the wider UAE, about how governance, um, best good practice, and also essentially how we want to be viewed. Um, There's been a lot of debate online about what 
Abraj means for investment, for raising funds, particularly from uh, outside of the region? Uh, will there be less inclination to invest here? Will they create a vacuum? Will other players step in? Um, certainly, there is a lot of appetite to get Abraj's funds. They, they're invested in Africa, the Middle East, North Africa, um, Asia as well, Southeast Asia. Um, they really were trying to grow a lot of small and medium-sized enterprises, particularly the medium-sized enterprises, into huge enterprises. They've been very successful in that regard for, for a long, long time. But it seems the personality of the founder um, is very much set the tone for Abraj. They probably expanded too quickly. Um, they they perhaps, according to reports, uh, operated, you know, at, at perhaps not the most uh, – reasonable pace uh, in terms of what they were trying to do. But it's also interesting that it's right now the biggest issue center around uh, the founder, Arif Nagvi himself, who's not in, in the UAE at the moment. Uh, no one's quite sure where he is um, uh, because he is subject to these charges uh, for these bounce checks, which if issued fraudulently, uh, proven to be the case, can result in a jail term because that's the law at the moment. Now, most... Um, uh, bounce checks these days are being treated not in such a way. Uh, there's usually a fine or some kind of settlement, but we're not talking about these kind of figures. Those are for several hundred thousand dirhams at most. The first check that bounced was for almost 200 million dirhams. This one is for well over 700 million dirhams. It's huge amounts. And um, you know the the person whose checks the check these checks were given to had lent money to Arif Nakvi himself, part of which which was going to Abraj and part of it which was going to him. So he he is kind of very much tied up in Abraj. And even though he's tried to distance himself from it, he's stepped down from running it. And I guess in some way hoping that Abraj could move forward. They've lost a lot of senior executives. Their reputation is very much tarnished. It's difficult to see where things are going to go from here. But certainly as a test case, as a kind of learning lesson, as much as to say that may sound cold to the real lives that are being affected by this, but certainly going forward, there will be reverberations and a big impact for the region when it comes to the Abraj story. But stay with the national.ae on that. We're, we're very much covering that story and trying to bring you the latest news and developments on that side. Um, other big stories, as I mentioned, uh, we had tourism figures out in the UAE from Abu Dhabi and Dubai for the first half. They're both telling the story of resilience. Abu Dhabi's on course for 2018 for 5.5 million visitors. Uh, their growth rate in the first half was 5%-ish uh, year on year, which is good, which is good for them, uh, showing that they are meeting their ambitions. Uh, their big source markets, India, China, the Philippines, India was growing. Similarly in Dubai for the first half, India was a top source market, followed by Saudi Arabia and the United Kingdom. Indian numbers are growing, which is interesting for both Dubai and Abu Dhabi, even though they have slightly different top source markets. China was fourth for Dubai. Uh, Dubai had 8.1 million visitors in the first half. Their growth was flat. It's pretty resilient. We had a statement from IATA, which uh, is the global aviation body about passenger demand for the Middle East um, at the moment. They're saying growth in the first half of the year is kind of tailed off compared to 2017. So you talk about the challenges we're facing overall. Um, they're saying there are for global demand, uh, factors that could dampen it include geopolitical tensions, uh, the trade war, protectionism. Um, and, you know, also uh, we, we have the fact that... Um, 
uh, rising costs. We talked a bit. Uh, we'll talk a little bit later about how interest rates can benefit uh, a saver, but rising interest rates uh, can add cost to businesses, and you also have inflation elsewhere as well rearing its head. Um, and so, the rising costs in general could dampen passenger demand for aviation for traveling, and that obviously affects tourism numbers. But both Dubai and Abu Dhabi, wider UAE, is showing that they're continuing to grow that very, very important industry, which bodes well for the rest of 2018 and as we head into 2019, which is good news. Uh, let's leave the UAE for a while. Let's go global to the United States. On Wall Street, we had third quarter fiscal numbers from Apple. Now, why is this particularly important? It's because they are hurtling towards this sort of quasi-mythical mark of $1 trillion market capitalization. Does it even mean anything at the moment? Um, we, but people love these lists. They love numbers. Uh, we haven't had uh, a company that is approaching sort of uh, country levels in that case uh, in terms of the size of them. Uh, Apple's third quarter showed that even though uh, smartphone sales have kind of tailed off, they're charging more for their iPhones, which, is, which has actually helped their sales beat expectations. Um, their wearables division, interestingly, is doing well, but not the, the smart watches, but the AirPods, would, they can't keep up with demand. Now, I love those things myself. I've seen a lot more uh, professional footballers in the English Premier League using them, which means they're probably getting even more popular if all the Premier League players are after them. Um, so, I mean, overall, we're seeing a plateau in demand for smartphones around the world, um, but Apple's managing to sort of move away from that. Their services are doing well. What are their services like iTunes, for example, doing very well? Apple Podcasts doing very well, riding the wave there. Um, and when their shares hit $203, they're at 194 at the moment, they will be worth a trillion dollars. Now, part of me suspects that the reason why, apart from some overall good sentiment for tech stocks, that Apple's been going this way is because they've been uh, going through a $100 billion share buyback plan, which kind of gives you a bit of confidence, right? If you're going to buy the shares, that the company's going to buy them back from you at some point. So I wonder how much that's had uh, a part to play. But certainly it does begin to feel like with all kinds of geopolitical ten uh, tensions, not just affecting tourism potentially, but also stock market appetite, that maybe there might be a pause here. It might take a long time for us to actually hit the trillion dollars, even though we're very close right now for Apple with something like we're only, and I say only, sort of 30 or $40 billion away from it at the moment. But um, that's the way uh, you talk about stock markets these days. Those are the numbers. That's the scale. More Business Extra in just a moment, but first allow me to tell you about The National's other podcasts. Beyond the Headlines takes a deeper dive into the biggest news from the week with a distinct Middle Eastern point of view. An extra time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on Apple Podcasts or find us as always at thenational.ae. Alice Hain, The National's personal finance editor, is here as promised. Alice, welcome back. Good to be back again, Mustafa. Uh, I'm going to pick up straight away on a conversation we had the last time you were on, which was related to summer spending. And there is a bit of a summer feeling today. You're going on your holiday soon. I'm going on my holiday soon. Separately, of course, both families. <laughs> you're going You're going Canada. I'm going UK. Is that right? That's right. So we had a debate last time where we talked about uh, whether it was better when you were using a, a card abroad to pay in local currency or dirhams. Now, this is quite a complicated discussion because there are a lot of factors at play. Unsurprisingly, given the banks are involved and they are absolutely amazing at separating us from our 
hard-earned cash, right, in more ways than one. Uh, but anyway, so we couldn't quite settle. If you're making that big purchase or even that little purchase, do you pay in dirhams when the merchant asks you or in local currency? And we're still not sure, are we? I mean, we'll, we'll walk us through it, but what, what are your thoughts at the moment? Not 100% sure. We're still trying to work it out to an, to the point that we're actually going to get somebody to really delve into this while you and I are away. We're going to get somebody to, to look into it and, and kind of try and get a definitive answer for the readers. But there's there's two arguments. So so if you're going to pay in dirhams, there's two issues here. One is um, you're going to be paying at the merchant's own exchange rate. So that means uh, they can set it at whatever they want in theory. Um, however, it's... The case is also that you won't be paying the foreign currency processing fee, which is 2 to 4%, which is what the bank would charge. Is that for sure? Well, that's what we need to find that, out. That's the key, right? So for those who may not realize, anytime you use your credit card for a foreign currency transaction, and sometimes that can even apply to services in the UAE where the merchant effectively processes them like a foreign currency transaction, even though you're paying in dirhams you pay a fee between 2 and 4%. On average, it's about 3%. So say you spend $1,000 on a handbag, then factor in the 3%. But when the merchant asks you, and this is quite a relatively new thing in the last few years, would you like to pay in dirhams? Then the there are two factors, as Alice quite rightly points out. One is the exchange rate will be in that moment what the merchant gives you. So if you're on top of your exchange rates, which you are, Alice, right? Yes, I am. Then you will know immediately whether that's a good rate or not. And so you can decide there and then, shall I take advantage of this? But what we don't know is if you do that, are you effectively paying that foreign transaction fee twice because you're paying the the one that comes with the transaction and then there's the cost of doing the foreign currency exchange at that moment with the merchant. Hopefully, we're not confusing you out there. But basically, there is a piece of this that answers the question definitively. And we don't have that piece yet. No, we don't have a definitive answer. But we started discussing this because the Daily Mail actually did a story on this exact point, which is why I thought we've got to tackle this again for the UAE, because it could be a different, different rules here. But they looked at it and how um, tourists heading out from the UK to destinations around Europe were actually being riched out, uh, ripped off. And um, they they call it the dynamic currency conversion. So it, it's basically where you're at the point of sale and you get presented with this choice. Do I pay in, in my home currency or do I pay in my foreign currency? And the Daily Mail says absolutely no way do you pay in your home currency because the merchant can charge you whatever they like to so stick with your home currency. So what we need to evaluate, which we will discuss again in the future, is whether this is the same here in the UAE. Should we pay in dirhams or should we um, trust our credit card provider or our debit card provider and pay in the currency of where we are and then let them make the conversion for us? Because in theory, the credit card provider and the debit card provider is going to give us the best rate than the merchant sitting in the shop in whatever country we're in. Well, definitely a better rate, for sure. I mean, the credit card conversion rate's pretty good, actually. Um, given all things considered. It's definitely going to be better than the merchants. But then if these other fees are factored in as well. And then, of course, if we had the hypothetical scenario where you bought your handbag in London the day before the Brexit vote, then by the time the 
the actual sterling was converted to dirhams on your credit card bill a month later or within a month later, the pound would have plummeted and you would have benefited. But if you had paid in the dirhams at the shop the day before the Brexit vote, then you would have lost out. Oh, so, in a big way, yes, indeed. absolutely. So, I mean, we're not suggesting that you sort of use your shopping on holiday as a way to play the currency markets. But if you're going to be aware of your spending, and if, like many of us, uh, you're on a budget when you're on holiday, then the difference between 3% on every transaction, a cup of coffee, lunch, dinner, a purchase, or the difference in the spread of currency transactions, foreign currency transactions between what you might pay at the merchant or your credit card later, all, all adds up over the course of two, three weeks on holiday. Oh, it does. And, and that's something I'm very aware of because I'm going home to the UK for about four days and then I'm heading straight off to Canada. And there's that whole issue of what currency do I actually, how do I sort of transfer my money to? So I was thinking of it, transferring it to pounds and then paying for everything in pounds. But then I realized I was doing a double transfer. So it might be more cost effective for me to actually transfer into Canadian dollars from here and take that money with me. But then there's the whole issue of carrying cash. Of course, I've left everything to the last minute, despite being a personal finance expert, I have left it to the last minute. So if I'd been really clever, I would have bought a preloaded credit card loaded up with the Canadian currency ready to go. So it was a safer item to carry around than a load of cash in my pocket. So I'm having all those last minute decisions before I head off. But yes, it's a complicated process. And uh, I think the best way is to maybe have a few different options. And then that kind of hopefully minimizes all those costs that come with travel. I mean, we sp a lot of us spend a lot of time thinking, what will we pack? But you've got to put as much effort, if not more, into how you're going to expend your finances while you're away. Now, some people, all the spending's up front because they might do a all-in-one resort somewhere, in which case you don't need to worry. But a lot of for the city breaks, or if you're going on an on extended holiday, then there will be quite a bit of spending. And even to think about how you're going to um, you know, factor in paying with cash versus credit card. I mean, it's worth thinking about using the dirhams peg to the US dollar, because you can convert at a pretty steady rate that you can pretty much get when you come back and take dollars with you. And dollars will always get you a better conversion than dirhams will wherever you're going. That's a good idea. So maybe I'll do that then, Mustafa. So I could convert to dollars, I can take those with me, and then if I don't spend them all, I'll just switch them straight back. We're finding solutions here. We're finding solutions. Um, we, it, I guess the summer is not just a time for fun and games and spending, but also many of us away from the office might have a few spare hours in a day if we're lucky, especially those with young kids, maybe a few spare 20 minutes. Um, maybe we'll do some reading. And we've got some recommendations. This week, we published um, a list of personal finance books as recommended by experts that contribute to the money section. So Alice, any caught your eye that you, you'll be recommending? Well, I mean, there's quite a selection there. And, it, you know, there's some that are specific for women and that there's some that kind of uh, just let you look at a nice financial story like The Big Short, which a lot of us have seen that in the film version. Um, and then there's ones that are much more specific to being an expat, which, uh, you know, you've really got to kind of read up on if you want to get your expat finances. But in actual fact, I posted this story on LinkedIn and um, uh, somebody commented and said, thanks for the tip, Alice. But really financial books on holiday and I wrote back and I said well actually this is exactly the time that you should be reading a financial book 
Because in my opinion, personal finance is quite an emotional thing. It takes a lot of time and you've got to be in quite a relaxed state of mind to really think about how am I going to tackle my finances? How am I going to plan my future? How am I going to get to retirement and have enough money sort of set aside? And uh, if, you're, if you're lying on a sun lounger, you can think a bit more freely or if you're on a train or however you like to take your holiday. And if you're reading a book that's going to give you a little bit of information, keep that brain ticking over while you're while you're relaxing, but at the same time, maybe steer you in the right direction so you actually start thinking about your finances properly and come up with a good plan, then I think that's a good thing. I like the list of books. I saw, obviously, the Michael Lewis, uh, the big short. He's a favourite writer of mine. Uh, there were a few others. There was the... Um, uh, the perennial one, which is uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad, was on there as well. Yeah. Um, which uh, I forget the name of the author, um, but that one has been a bestseller for like three decades. What's his name? Who wrote it? Robert Kiyosaki. That's right. He does. It. He always goes around the world doing doing talks about that. He does. He it's comes a, to the UAE as well. It's quite a good read. A lot of these are quite entertaining reads. These books. Go to the national.ae to our money section uh, to see the list of those, and hopefully you'll you'll pick out something that's pretty good. But you know, as Alice quite rightly said, there's there's never a better time to kind of focus on your finances than when you feel relaxed, not under pressure, and usually on holiday we feel like we've got a bit of extra cash, so maybe we aren't so stressed, and this might actually help you spend a bit less. Um, when you're on holiday. Well, it might do, yes, Possibly. because you might realise that you're overspending and uh, you might actually think, hold on a minute, do I need to buy that handbag that you mentioned, Mustafa? You might need to just rethink how you're spending because, you know, you can still go on on holiday on a budget. That I, I'm a member of quite a few personal finance forums and one person who is striving to be financially independent said, you know, I'm working hard on that journey. Should I uh, bother going traveling? And I was said, yes, of course you should travel. Yes, we need to live and plan for the future, but you've also got to live in the now. You've still got to go away and have some nice experiences. Otherwise, you know, life is full of surprises and you might get knocked over tomorrow. So still go on on your holidays, still travel, still enjoy your summer. But at the same time, think about that budget, you know, have have a kind of framework in place so you know how much you can actually spend and, you know, make it quite generous because you want to be able to have a few special experiences. But at the same time, try and make sure that there is there is a budget so that you don't go crazy and spend way beyond that. Um, Alice, a bit broader, another topic that kind of we, we tend to talk about quite a bit is the the fixed uh, term investment plans that have been sold over the years in this region. Um, they, they're very expensive, as we understand it. Um, we've explained, we've reported at the National uh, many, many times about the, the, the kind of these plans just aren't suitable anymore for our way of life. And we, we have a lot more options now given uh, what's available online. Um, but it's taking time for the industry to change. Uh, the big insurers uh, who provide these plans aren't really allowing or, or promoting or, set or, or, or really giving a lot of effort to selling alternatives for those that still want to have something structured. And so we've talked a lot, Alice, about the options of um, you know cheap funds that you can put money in at you when you want that index trackers or are otherwise where it's very cost efficient but also there is a place um, for a structured fund that you commit to put money into but the problem is these plans that have been there have been too expensive too inflexible and you're on the hook for the fees for for the entire duration of the plan no matter what yeah then they're, they're not cost effective of you know um you you People sign up for, they can be 5, 10, 15, 25 years long. Once you signed up, you're committed. Um, and 
your fees over the course of the plan are actually quite expensive. So you want that, and there's layers of fees, and they're not entirely transparent about it. It's kind of layers and layers. So you can end up paying five to six percent um, a year on your investment which because is not- you're, you're also on the hook for the commission so they, they the advisor will come to you and say you don't need to pay me anything I'm, i'll be paid uh, i'm i'm taken care of but what you don't realize is, is that the life insurance company that provides the upfront commission for the selling of that product claws it back from you yes they do and and that commission i mean that quite a lot of it goes out of the out of the plan at the start of the of the plan, but that you're still paying a trail amount over the course of the 25 years. It kind of does go down as as you go on, but that advisor is still earning from you. So, but a lot of it has already been he's he's been paid up front or she's been paid up front. So um, it's a very expensive way to invest over the long term. But I've always argued uh, that there is a place for a contractual savings plan in the UAE. I think it's a really great concept because not everybody is particularly disciplined. Um, And um, the idea that you could commit to a product and think, okay, I I want this product. I'll save $1,000 a month and I'll keep doing that because over time that will accumulate and compound and that will give me X in 20 years time. The problem with saying, committing to that 20 years with the existing plans is that if let's say five years down the line everything goes wrong you lose your job uh, you still have to carry on paying that amount and if you don't pay in then there's there's penalties that come with that for not paying in and you still you're still committed to the product so there is room for a new concept um, and also a less expensive concept but it's not coming from the big insurers no. It's come. It's coming from a small company. You did a story this week in the National about a company called Abacus that's doing what they think is an alternative. Yes. Yeah, so they've created something called the three two one account, and uh, they argue that it's very very transparent. There's no lock in period. Um, there's there's a set fee that you pay up front. So um, there's it's a two percent. So if you invest, you commit to investing a thousand dollars a month then you will pay an upfront fee of two thousand dollars for entering them into the product and then you've got the uh, discretionary fund management charges and you've got the, the kind of financial advisory charge that goes to abacus so the whole thing kind of adds up and it's a total charge of about 2.3 percent and that's very very clear and very obvious and transparent you can read the brochure it's it's it, there's no kind of hidden surprises um but if you speak to some of the sort of personal finance experts in the community, they will still argue that 2.3% is quite expensive. And there's other companies, uh, fee-based advisors, that have platforms that you can invest to. If you, Let's say you want to invest into index funds. Uh, and they will also charge sort of around the 2%, 2.25% mark. So it's still an expensive way to invest, um, particularly when there's much cheaper options out there because, you, you know, if you wanted to, Mustafa, you could set up your own brokerage account uh, and invest directly into index funds yourself. Um, but Abacus, they have, um, they're doing it through a discretionary, they've tied up with a company called Brooks McDonald and they're a discretionary fund manager and they pick all the funds that you invest into. So I think this works for a certain type of expat investor. So personally, it's not for me because I, I do all my investments on my own. I make all the choices myself. But I always argue that uh, not everybody has fi- great financial knowledge and not everybody wants to have great financial knowledge. And and the best way I can compare that to is 
I go to the hairdresser once every four months. I have absolutely no interest in hair in between that those two sessions or those four sessions a year rather. And uh, when I go to the hairdresser, I just trust that woman to cut my hair. She knows what the latest styles are. She knows what the colours are. She does it all. I walk away. I do not think about it in between. And a lot of people are like that with money. They want that same kind of you know, they want somebody who's going to just take care of it. They want someone who's going to do all the work for them. And look, I'll just pay you a little extra to make sure that happens. And so for that person who just hasn't got that interest, you could outsource that job to, to this financial fi advisory company. And in theory, it'll all get taken for you. Sadly, money, unlike hair, doesn't grow back when things go wrong. That's true. But take your point that there are different options for different people. Not everyone has the same um desire or appetite and i think in the end that's what it, i think that's what our coverage comes down to in all these conversations we've been having is just be informed on what you want who you are who you want to be when it comes to money more importantly what are your goals but also that there are plenty of options out there whatever you do need is just identify what that is so it could be a more structured plan it could be not structured at all and and a platform that allows you to put money in whenever you want. And equally, you might just want to put it under the bed. I mean, interest rates are rising. There could be a chance just to stick it in a high interest savings account over the next few years. And that could do just as well without doing much at the moment. Absolutely. And in actual fact, if you read The National on Monday, I believe we have, we are going to be running a piece about the high interest savings accounts that are available in the UAE right now. I mean, your rates aren't still, they're not, still not that amazing, but they're better. And if you are the cash you like to stash your cash, then this could be an option for you, particularly let's say you're saving for a deposit for a house rather than just putting it in your average bank account. You could put it into a slightly higher interest savings account. That's an option for you if, if you're you know quite risk averse. But I would always say, yeah, sure, have a portion of your um, of your investment stashed into cash. But, you know, make sure you're exploring other options out there as well. Alice Hayne, Personal Finance Editor at The National. Thanks again and have a great holiday. Thank you very much. You too, Mustafa. Thank you. You've been listening to the Business Extra podcast. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi coming to you from our newsroom in Abu Dhabi. Uh, do have a great uh, week and uh, listen to us again next time. <laughs> <laughs>